We're going to look at two verses in First um, Peter chapter two. First Peter is a book that I'm loving going through. Uh, there's so much in it, and uh, this passage uh, from verse basically verse uh, four down to verse twelve is is packed. But we're only going to get to look at verses eleven and twelve. So let me ask you to stand. We're going to hear the whole section, verses 1 to 12, and then we will focus especially on verses 11 and 12. Let's hear what the Word of God says from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is God's own inspired and holy Word. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what Peter writes. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's own word. Please have a seat. Well, that's part of the work that goes on in our hearts. 
And when we see that warfare going on, we need to ask God to give us the grace and power to help us win. And that means that we are helpless to And that doesn't happen just because we decide to do it. We need to ask God for grace and power. And He promises to do this in Christ. We should talk to that. So let's pray to God and all of us make God's word and believe that this world in us, in our hearts, because Christ is the victory. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will bless this life. Now, if we be clear uh, to, to remember what I need to remember, it's all to uh, be ready to look at your word and keep your word seriously because this is the word not just of Peter uh, 2,000 years ago, but this is the word of God. Uh, God speaking to his people through Peter. So please, help us. Use this to bless your people. There's a lot of September 30th, 11 months and a few days, Adolf Hitler invaded Germany and began six years of war that cost the lives of millions of people because Hitler never intended to have peace. He was looking for more time to arm Germany and prepare for war. And he spent Neville Chamberlain utterly misjudged the character of the man that he was dealing with. And as Christians, we can misjudge the nature of the controversy or the fight or the battle within us. If you thought that you could have peace with Adolf Hitler, you simply don't know the man. And if we think we can have peace with sin, we're living under a delusion. Our fleshly desires are at war within us. The absolute final victory is assured. That's going to happen because Christ is going to return and sin will be totally dealt with. But right now we are in the midst of that final conflict. We're in the midst of the battle in our individual lives and in this world as we fight sin, as we battle with sin. It would be wonderful. I think all of us would agree. It would be wonderful to never be angry again, to never be envious again, to never lust again to never be proud again, to never show that kind of hypocrisy that is so often characterizing Christians, to never be cold towards God, to never be loveless towards another person, to have peace in our time. But day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, the Christian is reminded of the sin that, as Hebrew says, so easily, excuse me, easily entangles us. Now, Peter knows this. He is very aware of this because of his own life. Peter, the bold preacher of Christ, stood before the Sanhedrin and he proclaimed that there is no way under 
heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That Jesus Christ, he stood there. And yet when he went to Galatia, the churches in Galatia, he pulled back. You can find that out in Galatians chapter 2. He pulled back from the gospel. He pulled back from the idea that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. He pulled back because he was afraid of a few people. Here, on the one hand, you had the Jewish council, and he stood boldly with John before them and said those things. But here you had a few men coming from Jerusalem, and Peter had become a coward. Now, Peter is talking to people who had either come out of a mindset in Judaism that was based on a works righteousness principle that the more you do to please God, the better God likes you, or they'd come out of rank paganism, where following their idols allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever their hearts desired. So whether we have a religion that tells us, that focuses us on what, excuse me, what we do to please God, or whether we just give in to sin, Peter is talking to us. So Christianity, biblical religion, is radically different. It tells us that since God the Savior has provided forgiveness for all our wrongs, for all our sins, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. The Christian is to be alive to God, and alive to God means that we're to be alive to God. Because Hebrews tells us something very startling. Hebrews 12, 13 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We can't accept a phony peace with sin where we assuage our consciences and say, Well, you know, I'm not so bad. There was a phony peace with Hitler, which he used to rearm Germany for the Blitzkrieg. And the Christian can never make truce with sin. We can never negotiate with sin. We can never be comfortable with sin, thinking that somehow we'll have peace for our time with sin. So we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 here. Now look at those verses. Peter is using some Old Testament imagery here. He is pulling on an image that actually comes from Genesis 23, verse 4. He's quoting part of that. Abraham acknowledged himself to be an exile and a sojourner. He said that that's what he was when he explained who he was to those around him. He had been living in the land of Canaan for a long time. But even though he had lived there for a long time, he said, I am an exile and a sojourner. I can use the words of a Carrie Underwood song. He said, this is my temporary home. This is not where I belong. Windows and rooms that I'm passing through. This is just a stop on the way to where I'm going. I'm not afraid because I know this is my temporary home. That's what Abraham understood. That's what we have to understand. So let's look. If you'll excuse the uh, martial imagery, we're going to talk about the character of the war, the reason that we fight, and the assurance of victory. There in verse 11, he begins with one of the rare uses in his letter of the phrase, beloved. He only uses it here and in chapter 4, verse 12. Only two times does he say beloved. Now, personally, he may have known many of the people, but he loves them because they're beloved by Christ. 
Because they're beloved by Christ, they're beloved to him. God has done everything necessary to make them his own dear children. If you were to look back in the very beginning of the, uh, of the book, look at verse, verses 1 and 2 where he talks about the elect exiles. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So you have the triune God working to bring about salvation. So God has done this and he urges them or beseeches them. Now Peter, as an apostle, could have commanded them but the form of the verb that he says here in verse, excuse me, in verse 11 is a beseeching, a pleading. I urge you. It's actually a word that's related to our phrase paraclete. You know, that the Holy Spirit is talked about or spoken of in the Gospel of John by Jesus as the paraclete. He's the one who stands next to you or he comes alongside. And, and this word is related to it. So God has come next to us. He's uh, Peter is saying, I urge you, I'm coming next to you. He's come alongside them and urged them, beseech them to think about their lives and to think about their lives in terms of what God has done for them. That's the groundwork that he's laid throughout these first opening verses of not just this chapter, but of the whole book so far. Because when we are urged to do something, our, and commanded, sometimes our immediate impulse is to look within ourselves and to see, what can I do? Here's a task. Let me do it. Let me figure out how to do it. When I was growing up, my dad had built this huge, uh, probably two uh, or inch and a half uh, uh, plywood box that we would put on top of the car. We, we had roof racks and we'd, we'd get this box and, and he and I would lift it up together and then bolt it to the uh, roof racks and that's where we put our camping equipment. It's huge. It was so big that my sister could sleep in it at night if she wanted to. Well, one day I thought that I would show my dad that I could do it. He didn't urge me to do it. He didn't command me to do it. I thought that I would do it because sometimes when we hear these commands, we immediately begin to think, let me do this. Let me show God that I've got the power to do it. And so Peter is just urging them. Paul says much the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, uh, where there Paul says, I appeal to you. Actually, he uses the same word. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. So Peter is appealing to them. They're beloved by God, and he appeals to them as those who are beloved by God. And, and then he identifies them. Look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, or um, if you want to put it this way, as those who don't have a home there. This is a, a beautiful phrase that he's using here. Because the first thing he says is that they are the paraoikus. They're next to the house. Oikos is the house. They're next to the house. They're not in the house. The house isn't their home. It's not where they belong. But they're next to it. And then he says that they're sojourners. They aren't of the people. That's the literal meaning of the word. They're next to the people. They're among the people, but they don't belong to the people. This is how Stephen talked about Abraham. He talked about Abraham back in uh, the, uh, the great speech there in Acts chapter 7. He said Abraham was a sojourner in exile. He was next to the people of Canaan, but that wasn't his home. He wasn't part of their people. When I went to Uganda, I loved Uganda. I loved the people of Uganda. It's a beautiful country, wonderful, a fascinating place. 
But I wasn't of Uganda. I was a visitor there. I didn't belong there. My stay there was short. I couldn't claim it as my home, my country. It was my temporary home. That's how a Christian has to think. We're bound someplace. We're going someplace. This world is our temporary home. It's a place where we love, serve, honor God, but this world can't be ultimate for us. When Peter, or when Paul talks about this at the end of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, your citizenship is in heaven. We have to think about ourselves as having a citizenship that's there. That determines how we live. And that's the next thing that he says. Look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What are we to do? We're to abstain. It's a word that can be translated as to fast. Jesus uses it that way in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 16. We fast. We abstain from food. I have to abstain from eating ice cream. I love ice cream, but it doesn't love me anymore. Something has happened. And so I have to fast from it. But the word's also used in the New Testament for keeping a distance. It's used in that, that way in the parable of the prodigal son. When he was at a distance, that's uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 20. When he was at a distance, he was removed from his father. He was coming towards his father, but he wasn't there. That's the idea. We keep things at a distance. Now, we're in a culture that is teaching us self-indulgence. It's a culture that supersizes everything. You know, we went to the movies uh, yesterday and we probably got the small drink. I don't know whether it was the small drink or the medium drink, but that thing was that big. Those of you who have a few years on you knew that when you got a small drink, it used to be about that big, but now the small drinks are about that big because we're oversizing everything. Everything is being indulged. You can't just have a TV. you got to have an HD TV. And you can't just have a little TV, you've got to have a big screen TV. And you can't just have ordinary sound, you've got to have surround sound. We're doing everything to tell us that this world is our home and we come to love this world. So we have a problem in our country with an overtopped use of everything, whether it's drugs, alcohol, salaries, homes. We are indulging in a big way. And Peter tells us to hold back, to abstain. That goes against how we think, isn't it? how we think. We're to abstain, he says, from the passions of the flesh, the desires of this world. And when he uses flesh, he's not talking just about sex. Flesh is seen in the New Testament in opposition to what's spiritual. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The flesh and the spirit are warring against one another. That's the thing that uh, James will talk about in James chapter 4. The flesh here means what's related to this world, to this place in which we find ourselves. And it's calling to us all the time. This week I talked to a young man. And uh, he and his wife went car shopping. And he was looking for a car that wouldn't cost more than they were already spending. And her eyes fixed on this new Kia. $40,000. And he thinks, $40,000? We don't have $40,000. How are we going to buy that car? But you see, her heart was drawn by the advertisements, by the shininess, by the, the promises of how this, this car will do the things that you want. And that's the way the world does it. The world addresses our desires and draws us 
telling us that those desires will be fulfilled and they will make us feel fulfilled. Talking to a pastor friend of mine who's preparing to move. He and his wife are packing up their house. They haven't lived there that long, about 10 years. But his comment was so telling. He said to his wife, where did all this stuff come from? You know what stuff is like. It's like the tribbles in Star Trek. It just multiplies. You get one thing and then you find yourself with a multitude of things. And, and they're all grippiness. They're all holiness. These things seem to fill that desire to be comfortable. To meet the needs that only God can meet. So Peter warns us about anything, no matter how innocuous it seems, that's opposed to spiritual progress. Get that? Peter is warning us to abstain from the things that grip us about this world and want to hold us so that we forget that we're aliens and strangers, that we're exiles here, that this world is not our home. Because even good things taken to an extreme can grip us in the wrong way. You know, that's a danger for us as Christians. We make our families the idols in our lives and everything is directed to making our family what we want it to be. And we find our satisfaction there. Families are good. They're blessings from God. We're thankful for them. But if they stand in the way of our finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ, we need to check it out. Now, the reason that we fight, the reason that we have this battle is because we belong to God. We don't belong to ourselves. When people go to war, they go to war for a lot of reasons. Sometimes you're defending your home. You grab that weapon and, and you run out the door as a minute man because the British are coming down the road. You're defending your family, your country. For many guys in combat, it's the guy next to you, your buddy. That's the one you're defending. That's the one you're there for. That's why you're ready to fight. Now, some like Henry in Stephen Crane's book, The Red Badge of Courage, fight to prove something to yourself, to see whether you're as brave as you think you are. But the Christian doesn't have any choice about this battle that we're in. When you become a Christian, when the God of heaven and earth brings to bear upon your life a sense of sin, that you cannot stand before him because of your sin, and he brings upon you a sense that Jesus Christ is the adequate and full payment for your sin by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. He enlists you at that moment and you get a selective service number. And you can't dodge the draft. You can't get out of it because you belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit recruits us in the warfare for the glory of God. Look what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our conduct as Christians is on display before the world for the glory of God. People watch us. They look at us. Before there are drones and before the NSA and before there are cookies on our computers that track all our choices, people are looking. They were looking in that day. This guy, Junius, down the street, Junius, you know, he says that he's following this dead Jew, Jesus, and, and he, he used to sell us dirt mixed with our wheat. Has that made any difference in his life? People are watching us. 
And so Peter says that our conversation, our behavior, is visible to everybody around us. He uses this word three other times in this letter, in verses 15 and 16 in chapter 1. Peter writes, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Same word. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct, same word, of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But in your heart's regard, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, conduct, same word, in Christ may be put to shame. We're living among the nations. And here the nations are not the Gentiles. He's thinking about anybody who doesn't belong to Christ. Peter isn't saying that the people he's writing to are Jews and they're the Gentiles out there. He's picking up on his description of what we early read in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, Christians are a new race. Christians are a new people. They're a new nation. If you've been delivered by the death of Christ and trusting in him from judgment through the blood of the Son of God, you are an alien race living among the nations. And it's not whether you're black or white, rich or poor, old or young. It doesn't matter. You're redeemed in Jesus Christ, and so you're, a, you're an alien, a stranger, a sojourner in this world. When we bought our house in Fredericksburg, it was a mustard yellow. Uh, and last year, we finally got around to painting. We didn't realize that our neighbors had been talking about our house for years. And when we finally got it painted, they kept, came, started coming up to us and talking about how glad they were that we had painted our house. We didn't realize it. But our neighbors were noticing all those years. People around us notice. What's our behavior like? What's our conduct like? You know, when somebody blows by you on the interstate and they drop right in front of you, cut you off, and you see that little fish sticker on their back, what do you think? What do you think about their conduct? They just zoom by you, cut you off, but they're saying to everybody, I'm a, I'm a Christian. We have behavior that's always on display. When people observe that we stop talking to each other because we're, we're angry with each other, our conduct is visible to all. When Christians watch pornography, go into a store and buy a magazine, or at a hotel, have that on their TV, People notice. Peter is telling us that we're to have a life characterized by what is honorable, what is good. That's the basic word, good. We know it's good because it's the character of God. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, that it may give life to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter wants us to have an eternal perspective. We know that Christians can do good things and still be slandered. That's 
what Peter said in chapter 3, that's what we see in the world. Christians can be obedient to God and be slandered. David Livingston explores East Africa, opens the way, they would say, for imperialist Britain to come in and exploit those countries. People can slander Christians. We know that. But Peter says something else. Look at the end of verse 12. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says that the nations will be eyewitnesses in that final day of human history. That's Peter's perspective. That's the perspective we're to have. There's a day of visitation coming up. The day when Jesus Christ returns. When the secrets of every heart are revealed. When what's hidden will be made public. When every human action will be seen against the standard of God's righteousness and his justice. We have to be aware that there's a day of visitation coming. This warfare now seems to last forever. The desires of the world that are at work calling us, continually tempting us, seem to never diminish. Their voices only seem to get louder sometimes. We have the feeling sometimes that it will never get any better. That simply living the way that God tells us to live only brings us grief. That conspires to make us feel that living as a Christian is too much for us. But there's the assurance of victory that gives us hope. Now you could say that when Hitler signed the Munich Accords in 1938, he was also signing his own death warrant. That death warrant wasn't executed till April 30th, 1945. But because of his pride and madness, Hitler wanted to take on the entire world, including the United States of America. And he badly misjudged the power that America would bring to bear with its resources and its manpower. That war within us seems to be strong. The war that manifests itself and how we live, how we behave before the watching world. Sometimes those things seem to claim such a place in our life that we don't have any hope. But we remember that Jesus Christ is the victor. Christ has conquered sin and death. He has put sin's power to death. That's what he talks about in Romans. As Paul lays things out there in Romans 5, 6, and 7, he talks about the fact that sin's power is broken at the cross. Jesus Christ is triumphant so that sin has no lasting claim on the believer. And because of what Christ has done and died in the place of his people, we are assured that our acceptance is not based on how successfully we fight this battle, how successfully we pursue holiness, that we are to pursue it. We're not to be passive. The battle is won. We are not warring against the flesh. We are warring against our own hearts. We're waging war, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The Christian is active in the war within because Christ is victorious. We don't have a standing with God because of how well we do. What Paul says at the beginning of Romans 8 is, For for God has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you turned from sin 
and placed your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous in him before God. And that means the Holy Spirit is working in you and he is doing battle even when you don't feel like you're making very much progress. Even when you don't feel like you see much victory. Because the victory over the flesh, that war within, may sometimes seem to be lost, but it cannot be lost because it is God's purpose to have a holy people for himself. And those times when it seems like there is a setback and when we have lost a battle may be God's way of leading us and preparing us for the next day's battle. I've always been fascinated by the Alamo, the Battle of the Alamo, because I watched Walt Disney have Davy Crockett at the Alamo, and I never forget the image of Davy Crockett there as the Alamo is overrun by Santa Ana and his 2,000 uh, soldiers from Mexico. And there's Davy Crockett, and he's run out of bullets, so he, got, he has his muzzle loader, and he's starting to bet the people who are coming up to him because he doesn't have any more bullets. But you know the subsequent truth? That was in March of 1836. Uh, uh, Six weeks later, Santa Ana lost the Battle of San Jacinto in Texas. The Alamo, that seeming loss, was a prelude to a victory which was great. The Christian life involves inescapable suffering. We are, after all, called to crucify the old nature to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. But just as Christ's death is followed by the resurrection, just as the Alamo was followed by the Battle of San Jacinto, what seems like struggle hopelessly, endlessly before us leads to victory on the day of visitation. That's God's plan. Turn back to chapter 1 in First Peter. Listen to what Peter says beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Same thing as the day of visitation. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God calls us to abstain from fleshly lust, from giving into this world, from following this world. Instead, he calls us to remember that there's a day coming, a day of visitation, a day when God will judge the hearts of all men through the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God grant us all the confidence in Christ. The desire of our hearts would become more and more to live holy lives before a watching world because Christ has been victorious. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us uh, when we feel so weary, when we feel that we just have no desire uh, to battle against sin. Um, you would us, prepare us for the next battle, because there is no ultimate defeat for the child of God. Jesus Christ will have a people, he will have a holy bride, in spite of the 
person that if we see now in ourselves and in the church, Jesus Christ will be glorious. And he will have a glorious bride. Father, you know how the world pulls us. The $40,000 car really looks good. The big screen TV is something we would like to have. Supersize our lives. But Father in heaven, help us to not be captured by this world, but to remember who we are in Christ. Angels, pilgrims, exiles, sojourners, looking for our heavenly home. Hold on to us, Lord God. Our grip on you is weak, but your grip upon us is almighty. And we look to that. We pray in Christ our Savior. Amen.